Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is part two of our 2021 highlights. This episode has, I think, eight guests, just some of the best conversations that we had during 2021, of which there were many. We had some very awesome guests. Um, Very lucky to be able to do what we do with this. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, It is a pleasure to be able to bring the podcast to you. So thanks for carving out a little bit of your time. Very sincerely from both Tyler and myself. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company, who you can check out at statebicycle.com. They have a whole bunch of really cool stuff happening there. They're always coming out with new products. So it's statebicycle.com. Lots of stuff in stock. That's important to remember because that's pretty hard to find right now. And use code ADVENTURE2022. That's good till the end of January. So to the end of this month, January 2022, use code ADVENTURE2022. 2022 that's going to give you free shipping in the united states the podcast is also brought to you by the black bibs they are home to the now legendary 40 dollars bib shorts they also have so much more happening there we have also shared a link to the custom order adventure audio jerseys that you can get they're 70 or 75 dollars us they're such nice jerseys for that amount of money um very much every bit as nice as jerseys that i've wore that are two or three times that so check that out check out the link on our instagram facebook pages we've put that there but look at everything else happening at the black bibs um, and also they have a lot of seasonal stuff so worth checking back often there as well at theblackbibs.com lastly the podcast is brought to you by wheel science who you can visit at wheelscience.com peter coom was on the show uh, about five episodes ago i believe have a look in your feed And check that out if you didn't listen to that episode. If you have anything to do with cycling and have any curiosity with respect to wheels and wheel performance, you definitely want to give that episode a listen. And if you have questions, hit us up, adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. We will have Peter back on to answer any of your uh, more in-depth wheel questions. And you can use code adventureaudio at wheelscience.com too for 10% off on to this episode, which is part two of our 2021 highlights. First podcast of 2022. Look at that. Dirk Friel was our first guest, or was, sorry, was our guest on April 30th, Dirk Friel, who is ex-professional bike racer and the co-founder of Training Peak. So we had a really cool conversation with Dirk and you guys have known each other for a really long time too, right? Yeah, I've known Dirk since probably the early nineties when I was a, in college there at CU Boulder. Okay, yeah, great, and everybody great knows guy. what Training yeah. Peaks is, but oh, yeah. maybe people might recognize the name Joe Friel more, right? Yeah, his father, yeah. Yeah, So who write, wrote a couple of really iconic books for yeah, endurance Yeah, great athletes. books, great books. So yeah, yeah it comes from a, athletic family and it's, he's still getting after it today cycling uh, ski touring and yeah that was a fun conversation it was a great chat so here's a little bit of our conversation with dirk friel and that's that's what makes it exciting right i mean that's why you're still lo- i mean you you love your job i can just tell yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a dream for sure. It's been great to work with different teams and coaches and athletes, you know, along the way. And, and I mean, you know, we have a, a really big um, coaching group uphill athlete on training peaks and they focus on, um, you know, big mountain objectives, you know, Mount Everest and Denali and 
traverses and these huge epic you know amazing high altitude objectives um you know being monitored you know through training peaks and it's exciting to see athletes on mount everest they're actually recording their daily you know workout like in training peaks and then a coach on a totally different continent are, is reviewing that and giving them feedback on you know how to you know go up tomorrow or not you know based yeah. on weather and fitness and all kinds of stuff or preparing even like months out away from the actual expedition itself you know getting the athlete as well prepared as possible so when they show up they can actually achieve their objective so it's not just athletes with a start finish line we're seeing big growth in people that just have these personal goals to summit or to cross or to traverse or run solo the grand canyon you know north to south or whatever it might be so it's really cool to see the the emergence of these new experience experiential you know athletes it's it's not all about the start finish line yeah it's so neat i love yeah. it it's really cool yeah possibilities are endless really yeah well and in coaching too there's so much more opportunity in coaching because <laughs> So many people need and want that expert advice, but they don't even know it really exists sometimes. Yeah. You know, and so they'll those go off the latest article in whatever magazine they read, but that's the middle middle of the bell curve, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they are. They might be to the extreme of one way or the other. And so if they got that expert instruction, oh my God, they would improve so much more. You know. So it's it's great seeing athletes achieve their goals through expert instruction and, and and deliberate practice, you know, with a coach. May 5th, we had Jeremiah Bishop and Tyler Pearson to tell us about the impossible road death valley. Um, it was the second time we've hosted Tyler, first time we've hosted Jeremiah. So Tyler's the vegan cyclist, and they have a essentially a brand, I guess, a different, a separate YouTube channel for the impossible route. They've done a few different ones, but, but this one across death Valley was bonkers. And there's a super cool video on it too, on YouTube. Yeah, that was pretty extreme. Uh, great conversation. Just two uh, great people with, uh, and they love cycling. They absolutely love cycling. So it was a, it was fun to chat with them and um, follow along in the, on their journey. Yeah, great ambassadors for the sport. So here's a little yeah. bit of our conversation with Jeremiah and Tyler. Part of like how this thing got like an accelerant put on it was, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. I mean, I feel like I've done every race like 20 times and, you know, like, hey, let's do something different. And then there was this COVID thing coming in, but it was like, you know, one or two cases in Boston, one or two cases here or there. It was like something on our radar, but it was kind of creeping in and didn't quite blow up yet. But by the time we had done the video, I mean, it was like everybody's in quarantine, like locked down in their house, nothing to do. People are riding bikes and doing some outdoor stuff, but really it, it, can't, it couldn't have come at a better time. And yeah, yeah big part it was of it. Perfect timing. You know, I, I don't know. We're all like locked down and it was just a great video to watch to put you in a good mood and you know i don't know maybe someday pete maybe you and i'll do it someday you should oh, not, it's not so as cool. fast as these guys but it just looked no. like it looked like fun and you know i love all the you know all the question marks that came about during the day and you know 
you were like bushwhacking through that old road there. You had to jump over a fence. I think you did something. That, like that. that was, yeah, that, that was the, awesome. It was awesome. The bushwhacking was yeah, what I had envisioned, yeah. you know, gravel riding in Hawaii was going to be like, that yeah. was my favorite part by far. That's great. That's great. Good to see you, Tyler. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm down in LA right now getting unfucked. So, um, you okay. know, I broke my leg and yeah, my, I'm sorry because of that, my, all my biomechanics are just trash. And so, uh, I'm here at my physical therapist's house and he's just been working on me. Um, when I'm riding, I'm riding tilted. Like I'm, I, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. I all, every muscle that is, was surrounding my hip is just you know either way underworked or way overworked and yeah. so just you know some of the basic mobility stuff is not good <laughs> so we're here to uh to get fit and to get straight and go well that's on. a good sign you're riding again that was quick yeah I, I i think so man i mean i started uh it was four weeks nothing and then yeah. from week four to five i started walking and doing like super light Zwift. And then from five to six, I kind of started to incorporate some light workouts. Uh, then six to seven, I, I did some heavy workouts and, and then did yeah. two crits. So, Whoa. Uh, no way. you know, yeah, yeah I would be doing crits wow. first thing back from a broken hip. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing crit, crits coming back from a broken wrist. <laughs> but I was, yeah, I mean, uh, getting fit ra racing is a real good way to uh to get that high end but you know i just sat in the pack i just looked i just watched from you know the back but there was a big crash and the whole time i'm like going towards it and i'm just like please no you know yeah. <laughs> please no and I, I i narrowly avoided it but uh you know that was that was my only real concern was don't don't end up on the ground yeah. Well, we, yeah, I, I guess we could start the conversation with the end of the story, which the last, you know, two minutes of, of your latest video, which is so awesome. But the last two minutes, like, oh, I was gutted, man. Like, because there's this, like, there's this emotional letdown that happens once you complete, like, a big objective, right? Whether that's a day or whether it's a week or whatever. But then you compound the, like, that emotional response with, like, a serious injury. I was just, like, so bummed for you. Yeah, so what I would, because I haven't really actually got to talk to Jeremiah a little bit about, you know, what it was like afterwards, because the whole, the whole team is ready to celebrate. And then I go and I take a massive turd on the whole thing. And so then everyone's sort of like, well, what do we, do we celebrate? Do we not celebrate? You know, it was a very anticlimactic finish there because of me. And everyone's like, dude, just walk. You're fine. It's not that big a deal. And I'm like, I. I can feel things moving around in my hip, you know? And so, um, Jeremiah, like what it, what for you, was it disappointing to be like, man, we should have all celebrated as a team or did you guys celebrate while I was <laughs> no. crying? <in> that crying? <laughs> we couldn't celebrate, man. It's, you know, I think a part of what makes this thing special was the team, you know, really when I look back at it, you know, 10 years from now, I'll think about the ride. The ride's cool. But the team effort and, and the squad that we put together, um, you know, Bijou and Rami, uh, you know, just knocked it out of the park. You know, Travis um, was aces all week, thinking ahead, solving problems we didn't even know about. 
Um, you know, Dale was just on point, you know, running gun, putting the drone up, capturing shots the other guys missed. Um, Bijou was like, you know, finding spots in the desert to set up and, and just our sat phones went down, but our mission stayed tight. And it was a testament to like the team, you know, us working together to get through this whole damn thing. Um, so we, we felt just terrible. Like, I mean, we, I mean, there was just nothing you could say. I mean, the champagne just, we poured it down the drain uh, of the, you know, rain gutter. And we were like, oh, well. <laughs> well, let's let's back up a little bit and kind of just give some context to what we're even talking about um, in case someone hasn't watched this film. And, yeah, and so, uh, you know, Jeremiah and I did a, uh, it, it's the impossible route. We deemed it the impossible route, which was Mauna Kea. So we... Um, Jeremiah had been looking at a few different routes and then he hit me up with, hey, would you like to come and try to film this, you know, crazy gravel side of the tallest volcano in the world, right, in, in Hawaii. So then we did that. It was awesome. Um, Canyon really was stoked on how that project came out. I was too because there was really no budget. There was, it was all last minute. I mean, I don't think we had our plane tickets to like a week before, you know, uh, the bike showed up the day before. I mean, it was it, everything was just running gun. Like, like I remember calling him on the phone, like this is like two weeks before we're supposed to like go and do this thing. Hey, what's going on? I got this idea. May 13th, we hosted Alex Howe's who's a pro cyclist and the, was at that time the U.S. National Road Champion. He went and saw right. the ensuing race that year, actually, in person, right? Uh, this last year, yeah. In 2021, yeah. I went to Knoxville and watched the <clears throat> right. men Right, so he was the 2020 race. champion. Yeah, yeah. 20, was it 2019 or 2020? Oh, maybe they sat out 2020, right? Yeah, I think he was 2019 champion. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Which still, like, is one of the best finishes I've ever seen in a bike race, so it's yeah, worth I going back watch to it watch. When it happened. Oh, you gotta and watch it. You sent me the link, and I yeah. was like completely mesmerized by the end of that race. Yeah. It was like anybody. It was anybody's race, like really right up until the last. It was under a kilometer, probably. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, just a badass effort. You know, great human being, and uh, you know, it was a fun, another fun conversation. Alex. Yeah, if you're not following Alex on social media, you have to because he's. First of all, an awesome personality, but also transitioning into a more adventurous career off of just the road, too. And so he's having a ton of really cool adventures. So here's a little bit yeah. of our chat with Alex. Hey, well, I, I, uh, I share with Pete your national championship win in 2019. Uh, there's a video out there. And it, man, that was the, one of the coolest finishes I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so exciting and you, it's crazy you i don't know i'd just love to maybe talk a little bit about that that race you know you had been trying to win that thing for i don't know five six seven years and come really really close Oof. and then you know knoxville 2019 and it was just a drag race and just a suffer fest and you never gave up you never gave up and you know, to come around that guy, Stephen, um, came around Bassett or something. Yeah. Bassett. Uh, yeah. Bassett. Yeah. Uh, right in the final, whatever 
300 meters was an incredible, incredible. And in day. like at like yeah. the 12 minute mark of that video, the commentators are already saying how yeah. sad it is that you're not going to win again. Yes. It's yes. crazy. It's yeah. what a comeback. Yeah. 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 I mean, Nationals, it was... it's a terrible race. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's awful. Like, you know, you know what it's like racing at Tyler. It's, it's, you know, you spend all year racing in Europe and, you know, every, everything kind of, I mean, racing in Europe is super hard, but it makes yeah. sense a lot of times. Like, you know, there's there's a mathematical formula, and, like, if you can solve the equation, like, you can figure out how to win. Uh, but nationals, I mean, it, 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 none of, nothing makes sense. There's no, math, there's no mathematical equation to that race. Yeah. Um, you know, it's world tour riders racing against domestic riders and pro continental teams with, you know, 15 riders on their squad and you know everything that seems like nobody has any logic or rationale to what they're doing a lot of times and um you know that that, i've been trying to win that race for like 10 years and like yeah just showing up to it with my with my calculator every year like okay this is how i'm gonna do it and then 2019 i was like fuck it like i'm just gonna just i don't care like i'll just I don't care. First of all, I've, I've lost so many times. I don't care if I lose again. And second of all, like let's just race it like junior race, like a junior race, because that's basically what it is. So I, I went with like like four laps into the thing, and just decided I was going to race it from the front, which tactically just is the dumbest thing you could do. Like I think I did probably did twice the work that you know almost everybody in that race did. But my rationale was like every time you get caught behind the nationals, like you just have 30 people sitting on your wheel. Um, and that hill's really not short enough or long enough to, to bridge a significant gap. So it was like, well, I'll just race it from the front and, you know, just basically race it. Like, you know, if my, if my wife's grandfather was giving me advice on how to like race, it's like, just stay, just like win the whole time. And then you'll go faster than everybody. (laughs) You know, (laughs) just make sure your front wheels in front of everybody else the whole time. And then eventually you'll just, and then you'll cross the finish line and then you'll win. So that's kind of what I did. Uh, and it didn't work out super great there towards the end. Cause I was, I mean, I was cramping for the last three hours. Like I was messed up. Um, but you know, with, with only three guys, you know, me and two others there, it's like, I told myself, you know, this is true. Like I've never lost a three up sprint. I've lost a two up sprint. I've lost a four up sprint, but I've never lost a three up sprint. And so in my head, I was like, I can't lose. Like, there's no way I can lose. You know, even if I'm dropped, I can't lose. (laughs) Just keep pedaling, just keep pedaling and just keep fighting. And it's like, it's not over till it's over. Um, but yeah, that race really jacked me up. Like I, I couldn't really walk right for like a week. Like I, my legs were so toast. Like I've never had cramps like that in my life and just like keep pedaling. And I mean, yeah, the next day I was just like visibly inflamed. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> like my knees are all messed up. Like, Oh, everything was messed up, but Hey, who cares? You know, got the story. Yeah. Yeah. June 4th, we had Andy Van Bergen from Cycling Tips, and he's the founder of Health 500 and the founder of the Everesting Challenge. Andy's obviously become a pretty good friend. Yeah. I consider him a kindred spirit. In a lot of ways, he's like an Australian version of me, always kind of one-upping his friends and 
thinking of some other ridiculous uh, bike ride to do, but Andy has inspired a ton of people. Including yourself. Including myself, yeah. Count me among yeah. them. And yeah, 20,000 other too. entrants into oh, the yeah. uh, Everesting Hall of Fame. So um, Andy's had just had a really, really interesting life and the way that the, the bike has been involved in it. We obviously, we do talk a lot about Everesting um, in this chat, but um, lots of Andy-related content over on the Everesting podcast feed too. But here's a little bit of our initial chat with Andy Van Bergen back uh, in June of 2021. But at the time, it was just so above and beyond anything that anyone had really heard for, for of that it just really gained a lot of attraction and, and notoriety. And people would introduce us and say, oh, you know, it's John and Andy and, and Chet, you know, those Hells 500 guys. Um, and, and the name sort of just stuck. But then, of course, like every year, we'd have just a handful more people say, hey, I'm, I'm keen, I want to be in on whatever this next epic is. So, you know, the following year, there was 15 people, and then the following year, there was 20 people. And then the year after that, we just had so many people. I, I had over 100 people from all over the world. Like I had people from the States and from, from in England and a guy from France who wanted to fly to Australia to come and join Australia. I think it's like, you don't understand. This isn't some big event. It's literally my parents baking, you know, usually <laughs> slice and hanging out bananas and my sister and my wife, like, taking photos, hanging out inside of the car. And, like, there's no, there's no event. There's no hoarding or, or banners or anything like that. It's just, just us. So we, we had to knock back a whole lot of people. But I kind of realised at that point that if we were to continue doing these Hells 500 epics and by now we had like a quite an interested and growing community in what we we're doing as well, I kind of knew that if this was to continue, it'd have to be something that wasn't bound by a geographic location. It was, it was this idea of like a replicable challenge that you could pick up and do in your backyard wherever you were in the world and i come from dutch background and i'm a obviously a, a very keen hill climber so my my yardstick and all of this was like it has to be able to work in in the netherlands <laughs> you know the, the flattest place on earth just about like if, if it can't work there then it can't work anyway so i kind of always had that in the back of my mind as well um but i'd heard about this training ride you, you mentioned before george mallory uh junior so the grandson of, of the George Mallory. And I read about this training ride that he did 20 years before, back in 1994. And, you know, you guys talked about the story. Obviously, he was training to, to climb Mount Everest itself as a, as a mountaineer. Uh, he did this epic ride where he climbed the equipment height of Mount Everest. And I, I think he'd, he'd written the article, uh, like, back, I don't know, 20, 2012 or whatever it was. It was, like, years and years before uh, about this ride from 20 years ago and, and whenever when i read about that it just kind of stuck in the back of my brain like it's so crazy like everest is the biggest and most mon monumental thing in the world and to climb the equivalent height was crazy and i guess i was in a fortunate position where because we'd done so many of these large elevation challenges where we'd done you know like ten thousand over two days or six thousand in a day or seven thousand in a day i had a pretty good understanding myself of what that elevation height that he climbed was like. And we I hadn't even climbed that high myself in that amount of time. So I knew it was big and meaty, but but also Hell's 500 was kind of gaining, gaining notoriety for being those guys that were pushing the envelope and doing something harder than possible. 
So I thought, well, that that's it. Like maybe maybe this is it. If we could replicate that in in your own backyard, set a set a simple framework, then here's potentially our challenge that that could kind of unite our community. We could all do it together, and uh, we could we could yeah we could do this in, uh, at the at the same time. So I launched I launched the idea under 100% secrecy with with the crew, and it was about 150 people um, who were interested in finding out about this. So the deal was the only way you could find out about it was if you completed one of our Hell's 500 epics before, which is maybe 20 or 30 people, or alternatively, you needed to show us a ride where you'd done 5,000 meters of elevation in one ride. If you could do that, then you could qualify to hear about what our next epic was because it was completely completely under wraps. And the, the reason I kept it under wraps was because like I said, you know, these big rides were not normalized at this point in time. And I knew that, I mean, the, last, the only time I've heard about anyone climbing the height of Everest was 20 years ago. And so I knew if, if one person did it in this age of kind of Strava and social media, if one person did it in a weekend, everybody would be talking about it. So in my mind, I just thought, oh, what if it's not one person? Well, what if it's 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 people that do it at once? And that would just be bonkers. And if that comes out of nowhere, then that, that'll, that'll kind of gain, gain a lot of uh, attention. So, yeah, there's uh, of the uh, there's about 120 people who sent through qualifying rides. And for, for most people, that meant they had to go out and do a 5,000-metre ride to qualify. So it's not like you've got one of those in your bag most of the time. So people are doing the hardest ride of their life to find out about what this epic was. <laughs> and it was pretty disappointing disappointed people when I then dropped on them what the actual event was that they were told to uh, yeah, where to go a couple of times. Uh, plenty of people in that in that maybe 120 qualifiers that told us that it was completely bonkers and it was going to be impossible. Again, there was no yardstick other than this guy that we didn't really know that well that it had sort of done it all these years ago. But we talked about it with George and he kind of gave us our blessing and encouragement and said he'd actually jump, jump on with us and join us in, in kind of launching this, this concept that we decided to call Everest at the same time. And yeah, then it happened. So it was in uh, 2014 on this one weekend in February, uh, there was about 50 people that, that went out to different pockets of, all around the world and, and went and attempted their own Everesting. And it, it was massive, obviously. Like uh, I, I knew it would be big. And, and I think in the end, there was maybe 30 or 35 people that were successful that opening weekend. But there was, we had, you know, general media covering us. You know, our, our biggest newspaper in Australia was had had like big, a big full page on on this whole thing. Thing. Uh, obviously, the cycling community went absolutely bananas for it. And I, I sort of I, I had this sense that there'd be interest in this concept. It just and yeah, literally from that from that very moment, every single weekend from then until now, there's there's been some Everest things. And I mean, these days there's multiple Everestings every single day. June 11th, we hosted Laval Saint-Germain from Calgary, Alberta. Oh, yeah. What a great guy. What a great guy. Yeah. Amazing, awesome stories. We should have him on again. I mean, so he's got a ton more stories to share. Yeah, I know. Um, absolutely amazing life uh, and career and adventuring. So he's a full-time airline pilot, so that's not even his... Adventuring is not even his main thing, but he's done absolutely world-class stuff. He's not hes mm -hmm. not a weekend warrior. Um, yeah. He's the only Canadian to have climbed Mount Everest without the use of supplemental oxygen, 
that was a crazy story, which he shares with us and uh, a whole bunch of other things. He also is a crazy avid cyclist and just logs oh, yeah. completely yeah. ridiculous mileage. Yeah. Road across the Atlantic. Yeah. Road like rowing a boat. Yeah. Amazing conversation. So it's going to be hard to choose what to share here, but here's a little bit of our chat with Lavelle. The hardest part of uh, before the ocean row was coming back to sort of real life after Everest, right? So one day, sure. the most important thing is that you've got your stove and you've got an algae full of water. And next thing you know, I was uh, in management of the airline at that time. I was the chief pilot. And I remember coming back and very shortly after coming back to Calgary, I was in my office and my secretary came in and said, she wanted me to approve some overtime for one of her pilots. And I just remember thinking, this is insane. Like, who cares? Yeah, I'm going to sign it. I didn't want to know about it. I just, where's my analogy? Like, do I have fuel for my stove? Like, like you go from, from these uh, sort of living life uh, with, with, with such focus on just survival to now all of a sudden, and, you know, a day after getting home, Janet says, on your way home, can you pick up some bread and some milk type of thing? And everything just, <laughs> it was, it took, it took a while to, it took a while to sort of um, depressurize and get back yeah. to normal life for sure. And plus you're up there with, you know, people dying and stuff. So, yeah. so yeah, so I, I came back, I obviously, uh, I uh, re-emerged into society. Normally I shaved my beard off and then Mark, the guy that I'd summited Everest with, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, I'm an airline captain. He's a super yacht captain. So he he captains these super yachts in the Mediterranean for like Russian oligarchs and stuff. And he said, uh, about a year later, he said, do you want to row across the Atlantic? And I thought, oh, there's nothing I'd want to do less than row across the Atlantic. Like there's nothing on earth I'd want to do less than sit there in a little tiny boat with another dude and row across for, you know, 40 days from the Canary Islands to Antigua, which is the normal crossing. So I, I, I just said, you know, absolutely not. And, um, and then a few years later, probably took about four years. I just started thinking about it again. I thought I want to go from, so the normal crossing of the, of the Atlantic is from the Canary Islands to Antigua. And that's what the trade winds routes. You've got a nice wind that blows you along from the coast of Africa all the way to Antigua. That's the way that Columbus came across, for example. So it's warm um, and you've got the prevailing wind is pushing you to, to the new world, to North America. And, you know, I think several hundred people have done that. There's even like there's races that go across yeah. with teams and solos. And I want to do something different. I wanted to go from mainland North America to mainland Europe versus island to island. So the guy right now who has claimed the record for crossing the North Atlantic it from Newfoundland to some islands off the coast of, of uh, the UK, which is about 700 nautical miles shorter than the route that I did. I did it mainland to mainland, but but uh, just the Ocean Rowing Society, the way they keep the records, it, he's got the record. Not that it matters. I, was, I wasn't out there for records. It was an accidental fastest crossing. So I, I decided I was going to do that. Now, that one, breaking that one to Janet, was, was, uh, she was more disturbed by that one than by Everest, for sure. Yeah, I mean, what were your skills like? like yeah, well, sorry to interrupt. What were your skills like? Obviously, in the mountains, they were incredible. But what were your skills like? Zero. Zero. That, that's what I was thinking. That's what so I was that's thinking. why oh, she's yeah. skeptical, right? She's like, listen. Yeah, I <laughs> can understand. Yeah, I understand, Janet. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was less than zero. I'd been on a ferry from um, <laughs> the coast of the sea to the Queen Charlotte Islands. I'd never been on a ship before. Um, I'd done a little bit of sea kayaking, like amongst the islands in the Queen Charlotte Islands off the coast of uh, northern BC, but that's it. So I had to just literally page. I had to get my marine radio operator's license. I took my yacht master training. I read every book I could on on sea survival and dealing with storms at sea, which is probably not a good idea before you get in a 20-foot-long rowboat and row across the Atlantic to read about storms. And uh, I just, you know, I kept on training physically, which I do all the time anyways. Tons of research. I had a, a boat built by the best uh, ocean rowing boat company in the world, Rannick Adventure in uh, in the UK. And then to to sort of uh, quell Janet's fears and the kids' fears, I um, we flew there to the UK and brought her to where the boat was being made, brought them all there and showed them the boat and uh, to show them how rugged it was. How it's, it kind of reminded me of like an Apollo capsule. Is that tough? It's yeah. just like this little tiny thing that's made out of fiberglass and carbon fiber. And it's, you know, it's just like, it's, it's built like a brick shithouse, this thing. It's made for crossing the North Atlantic. And these guys know what they're doing. So even the hinge on the door is made for made for my route because of the prevailing winds. So they put the hinge on the on the door so that if I ever open it, the winds would prevail generally from the the north uh, northwest on that crossing. So they put the hinges so that when I open the door, the wind would always blow it back shut, the cockpit door, where I dive in there during storms. Versus the other way where the wind would catch it and bust it off its hinges, like little things like that, extra solar panels because of the fact I was in the North Atlantic and didn't get as much sun as I would if I was in the South. And it was an incredible little boat. And um, we, we christened it True Blue. Janet christened it there with a, with a bottle of champagne. And then Eric, my son and I, rode it around in the ocean there with the guy who built it. And and this is a just a long-winded way of answering Tyler's question. While I was while we were rowing it on this, this the Crouch River in the UK, the guy who built it said to Eric, who was uh, 14 or 15 at the time, he said, so uh, what did you think when your dad say he was, say, said he was going to roll across the Atlantic? And it's all, ta- I've got this, and when I do my presentations, I, sh- I play this video. And Eric's rowing the boat, and he goes, he kind of looks to the side and he goes, I don't know, it's kind of random because he doesn't actually row. He just came down one day and said, I'm going to roll across the Atlantic. At the end of July, we spoke with Leah Goldstein, who's the 2021 Race Across America winner. Um, I, I actually hadn't heard of Leah before, but like talking about people that we have had absolutely unbelievable lives. Uh, she was a world champion kickboxer. She was part of the Israeli secret police. That's right. Just crazy. And as an ultra cyclist and is the, uh, I think she's the first overall female winner of the solo category in Ram. Um, and she's, I think she's in her early fifties too, which as, as I get farther into middle age, I definitely find myself rooting for older athletes more and more. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Crazy uh, what an incredible and inspiring ride, you know, to be there. The, the the overall winner for for the race across America just incredible yeah like I mean and with yeah and yeah. tough tough conditions you know uh, super hot conditions so yeah. the dropout yeah. rate was insane yeah yeah it was really really high um, and 
yeah, Leah's a giant inspiration. She sent me a book. I've read it. It's called No Limits. People should check that out. But here's just a little bit of our chat with Leah. And you should uh, track down any other content that you can find with her talking about her her Ram ride. It's it's amazing. So, would you go back and do it again? Oh yeah, of course. Really? <laughs> yeah, I know really? I'm I'm really? chicken, right? But yeah, I mean. I, I know I didn't train for an 11 day. I know it sounds great 11 days, but that's not what I trained for. Right. You know, we, we trained for 10 days, like, you know, um, and for me, I still think I've got it right. You know, I think the power is there. Um, you know, I am pushing the envelope again because of my age, but you know, I got to give it one more shot, right. At least not necessarily next year. I'll probably do shorter races. Um, cause I did three years of training for him. So you need a little bit of recovery, right? Just mental, you know, it's time consuming as you know, like training 60 hour weeks. So you can imagine that you have no time for anything else. Um, so I'll probably take one year, um, just to do shorter races. Then I'll come back in 2023. That's awesome. And hopefully, you know, with a little bit of cooler temperatures, there's it's absolutely in play right but absolutely. there's only so many margins that you can take out like how do you chop off another day is it is it mostly sleep or you is is the hope that you could just average a little bit more speed if in cooler temps well, you think about three thousand so even if i average you know you know half a mile more right that would be that, that would cut off a heck of a lot of time right um so it is your speed for sure um it's uh, the stopping too because of the, the heat IV and changing, you know what I mean? And just sometimes you just have to sit in a van for five minutes, right? So there's a lot of aspects there of, of your speed for sure. Um, and I think too, maybe, you know, um, cutting the sleep maybe a little bit sooner than what we did, it would be one factor. But I think primarily is, is for sure, you know, it's the time that was spent off the bike because of the heat, right? And that was the only, that was the only problem we had. That was it. Did any other surprises come up for you and your crew throughout it? Well, I mean, there was funny things that happened, not so much funny, but in Durango, there was a drunk guy that got hit by a car and he actually died. Like he was lying, you know, and they stopped the, they cut us off. So we had to, you know, detour, like things like that. Um, in Kansas, there was like about a thousand cows that were passing the highway and, and you know, <laughs> and so, you know, you have, you just to, have to deal like with that. it. Yeah, you just, well, yeah, they give you a time credit, right? And then in one part, like I was in the lead and then the bridge in a part of the course was um, underwater because it had collapsed. So, you know, you have things like that, that just come up. But when you're riding, you know, 3000 miles, things are going to happen and you're going to see crazy things. And you have a crew chief who's like responsible for, oh, I know. Okay, so we've encountered this problem and now we need to do this to make sure that we're with the rules still, because the worst thing that can happen is have you know, you make some innocent mistake and you have to take a, a DNF because of a technicality and you've put all this effort into it for, you know, well, months or years, right? Yeah. Well, you have a, a, um, a chip, right? So they know exactly your route. So you can't do anything like, you know, without them knowing. So any technicalities, you have to call headquarters and they'll give you directions of what to do, right? Because say, for example, you know, I stopped at one area of the road, you know, um, and then I just needed to, to go to the head to my RV. If I don't come right back to that spot where we put an X, then, I, you know, it's a disqualification, right? They're super picky that way. So you're always in communications with headquarters and they know and they'll also advise you if they know something, you know, but it's not just my crew chief. I have nine people. 
So always three in my follow car. And then after 12 hours, they rotate to the other three, right? So, but the crew chief is just involved with the whole organization of everything. Cause she can't always be in there. She'd be a vegetable, right? You know, to be, you know, that much many hours in the car, right? Right, right. But that's, I mean, that's a stressful job. It would really feel like the stakes are very high because yes. you've got this one shot. You just can't come back the next week, right? You come back the next year. Exactly. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's stressful for all of us for sure, you know, but I mean, with Ram, all I can say is you have to expect the worst, you know what I mean? Just expect the worst that's going to happen. Um, not only physically, but with mother nature, you know, and you have to be prepared for everything, you know, cause we didn't expect this in 2019, they had the worst, um, uh, rain and hail and wind and cold conditions that Ram had ever experienced. Right. We didn't expect that. So for this Ram, I went to Vancouver, I got all the rain gear and I tested Gore-Tex and I came in with the, the full army of, you know, cold stuff. You think we pulled out anything, not one thing, right? <laughs> you know, so, and we didn't know about this heat wave till basically two weeks prior to the race, right? Cause it was nice in Borrego Springs. It was like a hundred. And for the desert, that's pretty darn nice. It's lucky if you can, you know, race in those weather, but all of a sudden, boom, this heat waves come in severe, you know, heat warning. All, basically all across the country. So then what do you do? You race. Yeah. At the end of August, we hosted John Croom, who's a track cyclist. Uh, he's a seven-time national champion on the track. He's also racing a whole bunch of gravel these days. Mm -hmm. And he's the host of the Coffee and Bands Chat podcast as well, which is, I think, going really well with the forum now too. He's part of a podcast network and is creating some really good content that way but john's a really easy guy to cheer for yeah i you know i've never met him but i've enjoyed speaking with him on the phone and um yeah he's got a great podcast what's it called the, the coffee and vans chat the, yeah yeah coffee i love and it chats. yeah yeah love it love it uh yeah. and he's you know great athlete and amazing track rider hoping that will be uh in the next olympics yeah yeah so, so fingers uh, crossed hard life like john's super committed to what he does he spends a ton of time on he's either traveling to train or to race or he's training or racing he right. like he's got those three speeds so i have a ton of admiration for the amount of dedication he's poured into his craft um so here's a little bit of john crew training perspective like when like if you talk to a track coach and told them you were going to go start doing like hundred plus mile gravel races, they just, did their brains explode? Uh, no, like the luxury of, uh, well, yes and no. I think the luxury of where I'm at with track cycling, especially with the U S it's like, you're, you're only being held accountable if you're getting paid and the U S isn't paying me. So, you know, they, they, I mean, as long as I'm fast, I'm fast. Right. And so, um, I remember talking to my personal coach at the time and he was kind of wishy-washy with that. And I ended up actually switching coaches. And the way we look at it now is, is that, you know, it's essentially my road program. So like I use that gravel as like my stage race program. So like we're racing against, you know, Viviani, um, Filippo Ghana, uh, Matt Walls, like, you know, the Cavendishes, like you just go down the list and like those guys have the Tour, those guys have the Giro, those guys have the Vuelta and they got these. And so like I treat like DK and um, 
SBT gravel like my one days, you know? Um, and so really I just use it for volume. And then to train for that, we just do the volume. I mean, I'm, I'm probably in 2019 when I started with this new coach who had me on this crazy volume program. Um, and we just really realized that I wasn't riding enough. I started riding anywhere from 20 to 25 hours a week, pretty much every week. Um, I mean, the week of Leadville, I think I did almost 30 hours and SBT, you know? So it's like, yeah. We have we have this like long game goal in mind um, of the Olympics, and I think that's one thing the U.S. hasn't done yet, and they always are like trying to peak for one event. And I think that's one thing that the British has dialed in very well is that you know they have the the Olympics in mind, so they train through everything else. I mean, even this year at nationals alone, I think the three weeks leading out, I can remember it like it was yesterday because I thought it was crazy. I did uh, 25 hours, 22 hours, and then 21 hours, and then it was Nationals Week. Nationals Week alone, I raced everything, and I think I was like 18 hours of riding. Um, and that was over 4,000-plus 4, 4, TSS. So when it comes to the training and the, wow. the volume, like um, just maximizing the opportunity, I think, is, is, is really what we did. That's great. So you're... I, I assume you're you're set on Paris for 2024. That's your goal. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would and even you're say still, you're still young. So LA in 28. Yeah, well. yeah. I I, I turned 28 um, on Sunday, and okay. so like if you do the math, there's a possibility for LA. But I think if my wife heard this, she <laughs> she would say we would just say Paris. Um, and I think, I think honestly, if I'm being honest with myself, cause like I have, I have some things in the pipeline for UCI trade teams and pro teams and things like that with that I'm starting for the track. So, um, which we can dive into if you guys want to, but, uh, long story short, it's like, uh, trying to give us the opportunity to ride the world cups and qualify the spot. But, uh, if we don't go to Paris, we won't go to LA. Like it's just kind of this stagger staggering thing. And so like, I'm going to give it one good go to go to Paris. And if I go to Paris, then we'll talk LA. But I think, yeah, for sure, Paris. September 8th, we hosted Reese Ruland, who's the founder of Cycling FKT. So we became, early on in our podcasting, became more kind of aware of fastest known times and that phenomenon. It was a lot like Everesting. It was like something that, that a lot of athletes could focus on um, during the pandemic, right? So as people turn their attention to with these people with high levels of fitness and competitiveness and empty race calendars. So people were chasing FKTs. and But it was mostly like there's a few, like I think um, Payson and Pete, Payson McKelvin and Pete Stenna both told us about like the Cocopelli Trail and White Rim. There's a couple of big yeah. ones. But then in running, if you go to the running fastest known time website, there's like literally thousands of, of routes that have been that have been established. And we, you and I had wondered aloud, like, why doesn't this exist? We'd even talked about like what would it involve to create this? And then I stumbled yeah. across the fact that this Reese had actually created this. So we want to shout it from the rooftops. People go out and establish routes, send them to Reese at, at cyclingfkt.com. Um, and let's let's make it as big a thing in cycling as it is in running. For sure. Yeah, uh, that was a great conversation.
yeah, very, very cool. She's mm -hmm. she's a top athlete too. So mm -hmm. uh, thanks for Reese for coming on and everybody check this out and uh, go set a FKT somewhere on your bike. Your interest in like the project of things like was right up our alley. And that's so I just totally stumbled upon your your website. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things to talk to you about. Yeah, obviously, including your work with Pro's Closet and stuff. But yeah, like we've especially since the pandemic started, we've both been fascinated by fastest known time projects and like yeah. Everesting and like that whole like where it's sort of something for anybody and in any part yeah. of the world and there's like all these cool different projects and with all due respect to all of the super cool races that happen yeah it's just it seems so much more accessible and interesting on so many levels because it's like really for everybody and yeah. and we were talking about I don't know like a year ago maybe Tyler yeah, yeah. I can't remember who we had on the podcast it might have been like Scott Jurek yeah, um, well, I know had, him. Had, I think it was a do you? Yeah, the man. from my ultra days. Good guy. Yeah. And awesome. we, we were talking about fastest known times, and, and we have had some cyclists who've done fastest known times, but we were we were amazed that there was such a great resource for that world in running, but not in cycling. And we even were like, we should do that, but we just didn't sort of have the capacity to take it on. And then I was Googling a route uh and i stumbled upon your site and i immediately texted tyler and i was like somebody did it we have to have that's great podcast. that's awesome uh that's so cool um oh, sorry i'm just typing something here um the so i kind of had the same thought process right like i came from the ultra running world like i used to direct an ultra marathon in telluride like cool I, I have always wanted to set the FKT for uh, the Grand Canyon, rim to rim to rim. Wow. Um, I still really want to. I was supposed to be going down there this fall, but it didn't work out. And anyway, Cocopelli is happening instead. Um, so I've always, for ultra running, it just be, it was like a necessity when it was first kind of uh, becoming a thing because there weren't a lot of ultra marathons. Um, but there's like tons of trail systems and runners didn't use Strava quite as much as cyclists do. So it was like, oh, this makes total sense. Like it was our version of Strava, but like ultra distance, <laughs> like no yeah. one's doing like mailboxes to first hill <laughs> one minute uh, segment. Um, exactly. Yeah. It is different, yeah. right? Yeah. Totally. And, and so I had always known it from that. And that's like actually where I got just tons of like ideas for trips or vacations is like, oh, there's this cool route. And, you know, I was researching stuff for White Rim and I just, like, I didn't know much about it other than cycle or other than the running side of it. Um, and when I was researching it, like the, the only thing that came up was like Payson's video. Um, yeah. Cyclist. Right. And I don't know, like that kind of rubbed me the wrong way <laughs> to be totally honest. Like it, it's not necessarily about the person, but the fact that the only thing that showed up was like a self-promotional video, which like, fair enough, I made a video too, same. Um, but I was like, oh, that doesn't, this isn't helpful for like the things that I want to know. Like, I don't care about this person's personal experience. I care about like the route, the conditions, like where I can get water, like if I can, like, 
um, start, stop, like what someone brought um, and like notable things. And I want the GPS. Like, so I think like the idea behind even like the ultra platform and then the one I created, the cyclingfkt.com was like, let's take people out of it. Obviously give someone credit for going fast but like, let's give people just the information they need without like, like uh, someone's ego or something behind it. Because like, I personally am not inspired to do a ride because Payson or Pete or Rebecca Rush, like any of those people wrote it. I, I want to do a ride because it's beautiful, because it's challenging. It's more intrinsic for me. And while I'm definitely like projecting what I want into this website. It's really like, Hey, I just want to provide people just information. That's it. Um, without any like weird self-promotion involved in that, like use your own Instagram for that. (laughs) Yeah. And all of that, like all of that curated media can exist somewhere else where it does. Right. But just to consolidate the the routes and stuff is really, yeah. really cool. Yeah. And Kate Boyle, who has the current FKT on Coca Pelli, she created another website, um, something similar. And we talked about this because she was like, oh my God, I didn't realize yours. Like, that's so cool. And I, I forget hers off the top of my head, but she would be someone that would be phenomenal for you to talk to. Um, just such a wonderful human and great, like, ambassador to the sport of cycling and like a steward of the mm-hmm. land. Um, so that's super cool, but yeah, I think like, you know, it's, there will always be self-promotion ego, like branded content and that's fine. I mean, that's my job. So I get it, but I think like, I do want to make a space where that's not like, I don't want that there. I think it's going to blow up. I I think so. I really do. So now are you going to like, do you feel now a responsibility to sort of figure out how these things come to be? Like, are you setting out to figure out like, what do we consider worthy of being on the website? So like, like you say, so it's not like the stop sign to the town sign post, right? Like you you don't want to have, you don't want to rebuild Strava. That right. would be crazy. So like, how do you, how do you sort of vet like what's like a good route and, and what do you accept for like data? Like, how do you start to figure out the, the more so, technical so, side of that yeah. and, and the spirit of it too, right? So that you can yeah. stay as like important. Yeah. And then also cycling is way different because like, what about disciplines, right? So totally. how do you like start to piece all that stuff together? Totally. I think like the biggest thing for me is like, like number one criteria that if you can't say yes to this, then no, it's probably not going to be a route is like, would you travel? Like, would, would this route inspire people to make a vacation or a trip out of it? Like, is it so epic that like people visit this zone just to do it? Um, And if you think about it, like even on the running side, like Grand Canyon, rim to rim to rim. Yes, Grand Canyon, pretty epic location. Um, Like the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier. Yes, very epic location. Um, You know, if I think about like local hill climb in Fort Collins, 
it's pretty specific to Colorado and no one is going to be like, yeah, I'm going to come. But if I think about like Alp <laughs> it's like, it's got a little different prestige to it. And I think like, that's, that's like the weird crux is like, there's a, a certain amount of like beauty around it, which is just like the natural world. And it doesn't have to be mountain biking or gravel. It can be road, like roads are still very beautiful um, in locations. But, you know, the other thing, which is not very tangible and is very human and made up is prestige, right? It is like yeah. this made up thing. Like you think about a climb in, you know, the Tour de France, what made it, what makes that one so much cooler than a climb that's not? And it's like, uh, it's just iconic. Like there's always been like a crazy mountaintop finish there or something. And so it's like a perceived uh, value. Um. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We will have part three of our 2021 highlights up probably at the end of this week uh, or over the weekend. And then we're going to be looking into our 2022 guests, uh, which we're looking forward to. So we're lining up some stuff right now. As always, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon.